We're looking at a story today from Mark chapter 9 that describes an experience that three of Jesus' disciples had uh, with Jesus. It was an incredible experience, and I imagine as they look back on that experience, they would have said, I, I learned a lot. It was an incredible experience. I was thinking about that this week. I've heard people say on many different occasions that, that in, in reference to something, that it was an incredible learning experience. I've heard people say that regarding going on a missions trip, that it was incredible that I learned so much. I've heard people say that about taking a semester of studying abroad. It was incredible, they'd say. I learned so much, I'd, I'd go and do it again. I've heard people say that about going to the fly convention. It was, such a, it was a wonderful week, incredible. I learned so much. And I've heard people say that many times about uh, going to our Bible school, that those two years of their, of their life grounded them in the faith. It was an incredible time. They learned so much. That's the kind of experience that Jesus' three disciples had as they were with him up on a mountain. The story we're looking at today is called uh, The Transfiguration of Jesus. And it's from Mark chapter 9. We're looking at verses 2 through 13. So let's read this passage together. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his garments became radiant and exceedingly white, as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to answer, for they became terrified. Then a cloud formed, overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. All at once they looked around and saw no one with them anymore except Jesus. As they were coming down from the mountain, he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. They seized upon that statement, discussing with one another what rising from the dead meant. They asked him, saying, Why is it that the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he said to them, Elijah does come first and restore all things. And yet how is it written of the Son of Man that he will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has indeed come, and they did to him whatever they wished, just as it is written of him. Let's pray together before we continue. Lord, thank you that we can spend uh, these minutes this morning looking into your word. I pray that you would help us all to be uh, attentive listeners and good students of your word today. And please help me as I would explain and apply this passage. Help me to make it clear and to be accurate in the things that I say. Thank you, Lord, that we have these stories to read in our Bibles so that we may better understand the things that have been accomplished for our salvation. Thank you for giving us the Bible. Thank you most of all for sending Jesus to be our Savior. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. 
Just a few things that we want to notice, first of all, regarding verse 2. It says that six days later is when Jesus took three of his disciples up on a high mountain. And so the six days later is probably in reference to what we read in chapter 8, verses 27 and following, that Jesus spent some time with his disciples in the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And so that seems to be the most likely um, scenario here, that six days after they were in that region, that this took place. And you'll notice, though, that this, this event... This experience was only something that three of Jesus' disciples were there to witness. It says that Peter and James and John went up on this high mountain with Jesus. Perhaps you remember that Peter and James and John were some of the first disciples that Jesus had called to follow him. And it seems as we read the scriptures that Peter and James and John had an especially close relationship with Jesus, uh, more so than the other disciples. In fact, Peter and James and John are often called Jesus' inner circle. And so on, on many occasions, we see that Jesus was alone with these three disciples rather than the whole group. And it appears that they were recognized um, among the disciples as being uh, leaders. And so Jesus is with these three disciples, and they go up on a high mountain. There's some discussion about which mountain that was. It's obviously not listed in the Bible for us. Um, the most likely scenario is that Mount Hermon is the, the mount that they had um, gone up for this event. Mount Hermon would have been northeast of Caesarea Philippi, but some would, would suggest that Mount Tabor, which was southwest of the Sea of Galilee, was the mountain that the transfiguration took place upon. I guess I lean towards Mount Hermon, as do a lot of others, uh, for a couple reasons. For one reason, Mount Hermon is a much higher mountain than Mount Tabor. Mount Hermon is about 9,000 feet. Mount Tabor is only 1,800 feet. And so it seems like Mount Hermon fits the description better in terms of a high mountain. And it also seems to be a little bit closer to the region of Caesarea Philippi in terms of, of traveling to that region. I don't think it matters too much which mountain it was on, right? If God felt it was necessary for us to know that, he could have made sure that that was included. But there is discussion about which mountain this was. But as we take a, a, a more detailed look at this passage, we're going to approach it from two main points. And first of all, what the disciples, these three disciples, were to learn while they were on top of the mountain. Because you'll notice that in verse 2 it mentions they were up on a high mountain, but then in verse 9 it mentions as they were coming down from the mountain. And I think there's two big things that they were to learn while they were on top of the mountain and two important things they were to learn while they were coming down. First of all, as they were on top of the mountain, they were to learn from this experience that Jesus is the divine Son of God. Okay? Point number one, Jesus is the divine Son of God. And there's two main reasons why we can say that. First of all, the fact that Jesus was transfigured before them. And then secondly, the fact that God spoke from heaven and said, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Emphasizing to the disciples that Jesus is the divine son of God. Now if you look at Luke chapter 9, kind of interesting to compare what Luke says about this event. He describes how as they were up on this high mountain that Jesus was praying. And it describes how Peter and James and John 
fell asleep. And so at some point, though, they were awakened to see Jesus transfigured before them. And so if you can imagine you're sleeping and all of a sudden you wake up and you, and you see Jesus with a brilliant radiance about him, his divine glory being apparent to them here on this high mountain, and, and it was kind of a startling thing. It describes how they were kind of a, a, afraid. But it says that Jesus was transfigured. It means that his appearance was, was changed. Um, the Greek word is actually metamorphosis. Okay, And so you maybe have heard that word from science. We get that word from the Greek language. And so you think about some of the critters that are able to drastically change as they grow and, and, and from their beginning to the end of life, they, they go through many stages, right? And we call it metamorphosis. And that's the word that's used here in reference to Jesus. His appearance drastically changed. He displayed a, a divine glory about himself that was very startling and, and, and awesome to these disciples who were able to witness this. And so not only was it his appearance, but also the fact that as his cloud overshadowed them, there came a voice from the cloud, clearly God the Father, saying, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. Now perhaps you... Remember how at Jesus' baptism, turn to Mark chapter 1, verse 11, that as, at Jesus' baptism in the Jordan River, as John the Baptist baptized him, there came a voice from heaven saying, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. And so on, on a couple different occasions then, uh, at least some of the disciples were able to hear a statement made from heaven, from God the Father, about Jesus. This is my beloved Son. And in this situation on the mountain, he said, listen to him. And it's kind of interesting to think about um, God the Father making this statement after what had just happened a week prior to this. And so this brings us back to last week again. As Jesus was in the villages of Caesarea Philippi, he's traveling with his disciples, wanting to spend time and prepare them for what was to come. He asked them the question, who do people say that I am? Remember that story? But then he got personal and he said, Who do you say that I am? Well, God the Father here on this Mount of Transfiguration essentially answers that question for them, right? Who is Jesus? He is the beloved Son of God to whom we should listen. And so as the disciples were up on the mountain, they, they were to learn that Jesus is the divine Son of God. Secondly, they were to learn that Jesus has come to fulfill the law and the prophets. Okay? Jesus has come to fulfill the law and the prophets. And the reason why we say that has to do not only with what we read elsewhere in Scripture, but in terms of this uh, experience here, the fact that Elijah and Moses appeared along with Jesus. Okay? It says in, in, in verse 4, Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Now, if, you, if you're familiar with the life of Moses and Elijah, you know that they were hugely significant figures in the Old Testament. And perhaps you know, too, that God revealed himself to both Moses and Elijah on Mount Sinai. And so kind of interesting, here they appear on another high mountain with Jesus. But Moses was representative of the law. Elijah was representative of the prophets. And together, that phrase we find in the scriptures over and over again, the law and the prophets is used to designate 
the entire Old Testament of our Bibles. And so you got Moses representing the law, Elijah representing the prophets, the law and the prophets designating the entire Old Testament. You got Moses and Elijah with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, and they're talking together. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 is a very important verse for us to, to think about at this time. Jesus said, Do not think that I came to abolish the law and the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Okay? I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. And so, in, in this experience here, seeing Elijah and Moses with Jesus and talking to him, it was an indication to the disciples that Jesus was the Messiah, that he had come in fulfillment of what was spoken in the Law and the Prophets about the Messiah to come. Now it says they were talking with Jesus. Mark doesn't tell us what they were talking about. But if you look in Luke chapter 9 again, we're told what they were talking about. And it's very interesting. It says that Moses and Elijah were speaking with Jesus about what? About his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Okay, So they were essentially speaking about what was going to happen to Jesus. And just as Jesus described to his disciples you know, that past week, he really emphasized, hey, I'm going to be rejected, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to be killed, I'm going to rise again from the dead. And of course, Jesus was going to ascend back to the Father in heaven. And so that's what they were talking about. They were talking about what God had already planned from, from eternity past to save human beings, sinful human beings. They were talking about God's plan of salvation. And again, Jesus had not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but rather to fulfill that which was spoken about the Messiah. He is the divine Son of God, and he has come to fulfill the law and the prophets. Now, look at verse 5 and 6. Kind, kind of interesting. It says that Peter, again, we know Peter was the most likely one to speak up and act first among the disciples. Peter said to Jesus, as they were witnessing this amazing sight, Jesus in all of his glory and, and Elijah and Moses, they're with him, talking to him. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. And as I was thinking about that this week, I, I, I kept thinking, well, no kidding, right? <laughs> No kidding, you're up on a mountain with Jesus and Elijah and Moses appear. This is a once-in-a-lifetime experience, right? It's good to be here. You bet it is. But then notice what he said. Let us make three tabernacles or like tents, okay? One for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Now, we're told in, again in Luke chapter 9 that Peter did not realize what he was saying. We're told here that he didn't know what to answer. They were, they were terrified, okay? And so Peter's just kind of speaking without really probably knowing really what he's saying. It could be, though, that Peter was hoping to um, maybe prolong their experience by having these tabernacles set up, perhaps thinking that maybe this can continue for quite a while because, hey, it's good for us to be here, right? This is pretty amazing. And so maybe that's what Peter had in mind when he, when he made that statement, but... There, there is this indication that he was afraid and he really didn't know what he was saying. Um, but clearly that's not what happened. Jesus didn't go with his suggestion. Because we're told that after that voice came from heaven, this is my beloved son, 
listened to him, were told that all at once they looked around and saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. And so their experience came to a sudden end. But we notice now, as we move to verse 9 and following, that after being on top of the mountain, that as they were coming down from the mountain, they were to learn some other very important things. And the first thing is that Jesus will be killed, but will rise again. Now that's not something that was brand new to them. But I think Jesus was emphasizing the importance of them getting this in, in their minds. I'm going to be killed, but I'm going to rise again. Notice verse 9, it says, He gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man, and that's, was, that was Jesus' favorite way to refer to himself, until the Son of Man rose from the dead. And then if you look at verse uh, 12 as well, Jesus mentions how he's going to suffer many things and be treated with contempt. In other words, Jesus was saying to them what he said to them at, as we read in Mark chapter 8, verse 31. How he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And so Jesus was essentially repeating to these three disciples what he had already begun to emphasize to the whole group of disciples. I'm going to be killed, but I'm going to rise again. And then we got verse 10. So they're coming down the mountain and Jesus is saying these things to them. And, and they, it says in verse 10 that they, they seized upon the statement. In other words, they, got, they just kind of zeroed in on one statement that Jesus made. And that is the whole thing of rising from the dead. Kind of an embarrassing moment for them. They were discussing with one another what rising from the dead meant. Okay? I, I think they should have gotten that, right? I think in their minds they didn't think the Messiah was going to have to experience what Jesus was telling them he was going to go through. And so in their minds they're probably thinking, no, rising from the dead can't actually mean what it clearly means. It must mean something else. And so they're discussing what that maybe means, even though, if you look at verse 32 of chapter 8, Jesus was stating the matter plainly. He's going to be killed, and he's going to come back to life again. And yet they're still, they're still focused on what this rising from the dead meant. But Jesus is emphasizing again that he was going to be killed, but that he would rise again. And this was part of fulfilling the law and the prophets. Part of God's plan of salvation that Jesus, the Messiah, would come and do these very things. He would be killed, but he would rise again. Now as they continued their way down the mountain, notice that they asked, they asked Jesus a question about Elijah. They asked the question, why is it that the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Now if you think about it, if the disciples were reasoning in their minds, okay, Jesus, he really is the Messiah, and this transfiguration thing is, has proven that he is, okay? Perhaps they were thinking that, well, if Jesus really is the Messiah, why hasn't Elijah appeared yet? Okay, do you follow that line of reasoning? Okay, amazing experience, Mount of Transfiguration. Wow, amazing thing we just witnessed. Well, the scribes talk about Elijah coming first. Well, if Jesus is really the Messiah, as the transfiguration proved him to be, why hasn't Elijah appeared yet? Okay, Maybe they were thinking that. 
Or perhaps they were thinking that if Jesus is the Messiah, like the transfiguration proved him to be, maybe they were wondering if Elijah's appearance in this uh, mountaintop experience was the fulfillment of this prophecy regarding Elijah. Okay, So maybe that's what they were reasoning in their minds. And it's helpful then at this point to consider what we find stated by Jesus elsewhere in the scriptures. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus makes the statement that John the Baptist is the fulfillment of this prophecy regarding Elijah. He says in Matthew 11 verse 14, John himself is Elijah who was to come. Now John the Baptist, as a reminder, he was the forerunner to Christ sent by God to prepare the way for the coming of Christ. And so he came. He baptized Jesus in the Jordan River. He went about his ministry, and then shortly after that, he was arrested and had his head cut off. Okay? That was John the Baptist's ministry. And his ministry preceded the ministry of Christ. And Jesus is saying that John the Baptist is the fulfillment of this Elijah prophecy. And Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6 would be a place where this thing about Elijah is mentioned. But Jesus makes it clear that you are to view this Elijah prophecy as being fulfilled in the person of John the Baptist. But it's because of this transfiguration experience that they're thinking, well, what about this Elijah thing? Isn't he supposed to come first? Well, if you're the Messiah, why hasn't he come? Or... Is this appearance of Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration the fulfillment? And Jesus is saying, no, the fulfillment is actually in John the Baptist. But when you think about it, John the Baptist was a guy who was, by and large, not recognized by many people for being who he really was, this forerunner to the Christ. And while many people had their hearts turned away from their sin and toward God, they were repented and baptized, um, many people just outright did not recognize him. They rejected him, and they were glad that he was killed. And in the same way, Jesus would experience that kind of thing too. He would be rejected, and he would be killed. But as Jesus proclaimed many times, he would rise again from the dead. And so if you can imagine that night of being with Jesus on the mountain, experiencing what they saw. But then coming down from the mountain, all of the things that they were to learn. And let's review them. We've covered a lot of ground today. Number one, they were to learn, and we are to learn too, that Jesus is the divine Son of God. He's not a mere man. He's not just a good teacher. He's not even just a prophet. He is the divine Son of God. Number two, they were to learn, we are to learn, that Jesus has come to fulfill the law and the prophets. In other words, Jesus is coming to accomplish that which was prophesied about him hundreds and hundreds of years before it actually came to pass. God had a plan to save the world, and Jesus came and fulfilled that plan. And part of that plan, number three, involved Jesus being killed, but rising again from the dead. Died as payment for our sins, rose again in victory. And then number four, they were to learn that John the Baptist has fulfilled the Elijah prophecy. That God chose him for a special task, 
he came and he accomplished what God had called him to do. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for the chance to look into your word together this morning. I pray that our time together would not only have increased our our knowledge about Jesus and his ministry, his life, how he fits into your plan of salvation. But I pray that in addition to, to better understanding these things, that our time together this morning would cause us to have a deeper trust in Jesus as our Savior, to acknowledge our sin, to trust in him completely for the salvation of our souls, trusting that in him alone we have all that we need to be saved because he has come and accomplished exactly what was necessary. Lord, we're thankful that you care about us enough to save us from our sin. And we thank you, Lord, that just as you promised, our Savior has come. I pray, Lord, that we would trust in him all the days of our lives, and that the way that we live our lives would bring glory to Jesus, our Savior. We ask this in his name. Amen.